Good morning and greetings in Jesus' name and welcome here. Just uh, a couple additions to the announcements. Um, just My wife just reminded me here as we were sitting here this morning that we generally take up an offering at the Thanksgiving service, and that has not been completely determined what that will be for. So uh, there will be an offering, um, and we'll just send out a text message at some point regarding what that will be for. So sorry about that oversight. And also, uh, lest I forget, um, Darla and I and some of our family were in Michigan last week, as you know, and or not last week, but the week before, and Dan's and Dennis has both mentioned that we should send our greetings, so I'm just going to take the time to do that, and so greetings from Dan's and Dennis's. Also, I might just mention that Mary Sue is having an operation on her shoulder tomorrow. You may or may not have known that, but... Uh, um, I'm sure she would appreciate our prayers and encouragement on that. So, All right, well, it's been good to be here so far this morning. Look at the different things that God has showed us from his word, and we're going to continue to do that. I have somewhat of, an, of, a, uh, of a, a different subject I'd like to look at this morning. And the subject is not addressed because I believe we have an intense problem with this necessarily, in our congregation here, but rather, um, I would say it's probably something that each of us grapples with individually um, from time to time in our lives, and uh, certainly it is something that um, God has a particular aversion to, and so it's probably good for us to recognize what it is and to uh, to think about it a little bit. So the title of the, of the message is The Anatomy of Rebellion. And uh, I, my mind was led in this direction for several reasons. Um, on our way to Michigan and back, um, and you don't have to go to Michigan and come back to see this, there is um, a concerning... Um, attitude in society about our current sitting president, at least by uh, a certain segment of society. And I think it is, it is, um, it is too bad, it is, it is uh, unfortunate that even no matter how you feel about the sitting president and his policies, which, I mean, I could get on board that there's some concerning things there, it is absolutely no excuse for the blatant disrespect that one sees uh, flying on flags and on posters and bumper stickers. It is absolutely abhorrent. It's wrong. It's it's just not right. And um, and every time I see one of those, I cringe. And uh, you get on the road and you travel a little bit, and you're almost bound to see one somewhere. And so there was that sort of running through my mind. And also, uh, I don't know if you heard about this or not, but maybe you did, maybe you didn't. But I was just uh, taking in a little news here this this week, one day, and there was mention made of of uh, a Starbucks strike, and it was called the Red Cup Rebellion. Has anybody heard of the Red Cup Rebellion that took place on Wednesday or Thursday of this week? And what it boils down to is um, there's a number of Starbucks um, outfits that are unionized. And apparently Starbucks, um, on a certain 
for a certain time period before the holiday season, they hand out your cup of joe in a in a cup, a red cup, that apparently is a collectible item, or that's at least what they want it to be. There's a limited edition of these cups, and so they say these cups will be handed out on these five days or whatever, and if you're really wild about Starbucks and collecting these cups, you will make your way to Starbucks even before they open and sit in line. You know the drill, how this all goes. And, and so the Starbucks workers feel like they are way overworked, and this is stressful to their lives and so on. And so they have um, a, the, the unionized Starbucks uh, apparently went on strike uh, on the first day of this Red Cup event, and uh, they're calling it the Red Cup Rebellion, and it's rebelling against how hard they have to work on these days or whatever. I just thought that was interesting how they would dub it that, and actually the word rebellion, we almost cringe at it, and we certainly wouldn't want to be described as a rebellious people, would we? Uh, I hope not anyway, but in that particular event, it was kind of espoused as a a, a thing of... um, of, uh, kind of a good thing, you know. They're rebelling against this uh, this thing, and then you may or may not be aware also that uh, apparently there's a segment of uh, unionized nurses in some of our hospital systems here in the state that are threatening a strike. And again, it's dubbed as a rebellion against their working conditions, their pay, whatever it may be. And we hear this from time to time. So. You know, I, this this stuff was just kind of going through my mind, and, and I thought about how that, you know, it seems like starting with about the 1960s, society has progressively got it, gotten more and more uh, on this bandwagon of just rebellion, collectively, individually, and um, it seems like there's kind of a, a moral shift that has taken place in the last 50 years that um, is certainly certainly not Christian for sure. I was interested, I, I did a little bit of reading on the, uh, on the 60s and what, what events or whatever kind of came together to cause that, that rebellious spirit, spirit to, to be so, um, so present in, in society. And it was kind of interesting as I, as I read through it, nothing really stood out to me as being worthy of what it ended up being, like, I mean, of course, you had the war, you had the, the civil rights, you had the, the woman's rights stuff going on. But when you when you come right down to it and you, you, you look at it, you say, well, was any of that worth the the societal price that we're paying today because of that, that rebellious spirit that's sort of become embedded in society and has just stood there and, and we're, we're dealing with it yet today? The other thing that led me to this is, and you can turn to Ezekiel 2 now, um, I, I was currently reading through the book of Ezekiel, and um, it, it stood out to me how many times the word rebellion or rebellious or rebelled or stiff-necked or stiff-hearted or words that are very much linked to rebellion, how many times that shows up in the book of Ezekiel. And it, and it seems profoundly present in, in chapter 2, and I'm just going to read this um, chapter real quickly here. And you just think about how many times this something like that shows up here in these ten verses. And he said unto me, Son of man, stand upon thy feet, and I will speak to thee. And the Spirit entered into me when he spoke unto me, and set me upon my feet, and I heard him that spake unto me. 
And he said unto me, Son of man, I send thee to the children of Israel to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me even unto this very day. For they are impudent children and stiff-hearted. I do send thee unto them that thou shalt, and thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God. And they, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are a rebellious house, yet shall, yet shall know that there hath been a prophet among them. And thou, son of man, be not afraid of them, neither be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns be with thee, and thou dost dwell among scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house. And thou shalt speak my words unto them, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are most rebellious. But thou, son of man, hear what I say unto thee, be not thou rebellious like that rebellious house. Open thy mouth and eat what I eat that I give thee. And when I looked, behold, an hand was sent unto me, and lo, a roll of a book was therein. And he spread it before me, and it was written within and without. And there was written therein lamentations and mourning and woe. Now, just a couple things that we can take away from this chapter real quickly. Uh, let it be said, the rebellion is not necessarily something that just shows up in people that don't identify as God's people. These were people that identified as God's people. And I don't know, something like ten times this word rebellious shows up. So God's people were being extremely rebellious. Another takeaway here is it seems like this thing of, of rebellion um, begins to become generational. If you look at verse 3, it says, They're rebellious, they've rebelled against me, and their fathers have done the same thing. It seemed like a generational problem that was just passed from one generation to the next. Also in verse 5, I would pick up that a rebellious heart is very hard to reach and has a tendency to become even more rebellious. And, and Ezekiel is warned here that just because you speak my words, don't necessarily expect these people to listen. And then in verse 8, God tells Ezekiel that if he doesn't speak his words unto these people, that he would be joining in their rebellion. Because he said, after all, I've given you this command and, and I expect you to do this. And then I would take from verse 10... That rebellion is a very grievous offense to God, because this the scroll that was sent that um, that Ezekiel was supposed to speak these words. It says that it was written in, therein with lamentations and mourning and woe, and that those words don't necessarily give a connotation of a joyous language. All right, so the the, the question that came to me is. Okay, so what can I learn from from this? Where does rebellion spring up in my life, and maybe in our collective lives? And uh, where do do we um, where do we struggle with this, or what can we learn from the Bible about this particular subject? Well, I don't know about you, but when when I think about rebellion, and I think about a key word um, that that addresses rebellion, is there any any verse in the Bible that just immediately pops into your head, and you're like? That's the one. I, I imagine there is, and that's found in 1 Samuel, and you can turn there, 1 Samuel 15. Uh, likely this has been stirring in your mind ever since we started here. 1 Samuel 15 and verse 23, and the context here 
Saul is told to go destroy the Amalekites. We know the story. He doesn't do that, not completely. He saves the king. He saves uh, the good cattle. And then Samuel comes to him, and he right away begins to blubber away about how he's fulfilled the word of the Lord. And Samuel calls his bluff, and uh, in verse 23, he tells Saul, he says, Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Now, just think about that a little bit. Rebellion, in God's eyes, is like the sin of witchcraft. Well, now, let's stop and pause and think a little bit about witchcraft. How much did God hate witchcraft? Well, in, Le- in Leviticus twenty twenty seven, and we could we could cite other verses. I'm just going to cite this one. It says, A man also, or a woman, that hath a familiar spirit, or that is a wizard, shall surely be put to death. They shall stone them with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. In other words, sorcery, witchcraft, familiar spirits, etc., was absolutely had no place in the children of Israel. They they were not supposed to anyway. And anybody caught dealing in this was immediately to be put to death. So if that's the aversion that God has to witchcraft, and he's saying rebellion is just like that, that gives you some idea just how badly God despises it. Now the question is, why? Well, think about it. Where does witchcraft derive its power? Easy, easy question, easy answer. It comes from satanic forces. What do Satan and God have in common? Again, an easy answer. There is nothing in common. Read Corinthians. What concord has Christ with Belial? None. Zero. Now, now think about this. Where did rebellion come from? Who was the first rebellious entity that we have record of in, in the Word of God? Well, we would have to say that it comes from Satan. And I'm going to read to you the classic scripture in Isaiah 14. It goes like this. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. How many times did the words I show up in that particular reading? It's just I, 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 I. I will be like the Most High. And and the, the irony of the whole thing is our understanding of Lucifer, Satan, before he was fallen, is that he likely was the most uh, highest created entity that God had made. Extremely beautiful, um, probably the most prestigious angel that, that existed. But it wasn't quite enough. And Satan rebelled against God because he, he wanted, he wanted to be the top. He had to be the top and, um, and he rebelled. Um, that's what we know about it. It's, it's somewhat sketchy. We don't know anything much beyond that, but that rebellion we do know originates with Satan and it seems that God has a particular hatred for it. In this, going back to Saul, it almost does seem like rebellion as Samuel 
lays it out there and says, Saul, this is, this is what it is. You have, you have acted in rebellion here. Doesn't it seem like a little bit of strong language? You know, I mean, rebellion? I mean, he did most of it. He did most of what God had told him to do. Wouldn't, wouldn't a softer, um, statement be better or more appropriate? Wouldn't something like uh, a mistake or a poor judgment or something like that be, be a better representative of what Saul did there uh, with those Amalekites? <clears throat> well, maybe in our minds we, we want to think that, but Samuel calls it rebellion. You know, Saul, it seems like he may have believed that he had a better understanding of how this should be executed. Uh, it would seem like perhaps that was the case. You know, after all, what's wrong with saving the king and these, these better animals? You know, we're even going to use them to sacrifice even. He may have even questioned if Samuel really heard correctly from the Lord. Because after all, it was Samuel that had come to him and said, this is what I want you to do to the Amalekites and here's how I want you to do it. Perhaps he questioned that. Or maybe he felt that as king, he had, um, he had no obligation to take orders. He, um, you know, he is king after all, and, um, he can, he can tweak these instructions a little bit. We don't know, but the bottom line is that from this scripture, we can, we can conclude that when a person goes directly against the word of God, when the understanding is clear, it has to be called rebellion. That's, that's what it has to be called. Jesus talks about a servant in Luke 12, 47, which knew his Lord's will, and he prepared not himself, neither did according to the Lord's will, and that servant was beaten with many stripes. So the lesson, I think, again, is clear. Let's, let's consider three more accounts here that I believe uh, show a rebellious spirit and how it, how it all ended up. The first account I'm going to refer to, again, we're going to necessarily turn to this, is in Genesis 3. Um, so we have the fall of Satan, we have, we have the, the creation of man and all of that, and very quickly into the, into the narrative of the Bible, we have this first temptation and Satan coming to, to the woman there and tempting her, and we have the fall of man. We, we know that. Now consider the fact that in that particular time, there was a pristine existence and a pristine relationship with God. There was no issue there. We, I mean, the, these people walk with God every evening, it says. And also consider there was only one mandate, and that mandate was, you, you can eat of all the other 150 trees here, but you can't eat of one. We just ask you to abstain from one. That's it. But, here comes Satan. And um, I think Satan, I don't know, I'm letting my imagination go, and that's probably not a good thing, but I think Satan wished to have the human race join him in his rebellion. And so, you know, he, he coddles up to the woman there, and he says, you're missing out. You're being misled. Um, actually, if you would eat of this tree, you could be like gods. Well, who wouldn't want to be like gods, right? At least I think that's what went through Eve and Adam's mind there. And we know the uh, the rest of that story, and we are still a part of that story today. And it is interesting to me that in that whole saga, everyone wanted to slough the blame off on the next person. You know, you know how you know that story. No, it was it was um, 
You know, it was Adam, or it was Eve here when, when, when Adam was addressed. Well, it was Eve, and Eve said, well, no, it was a serpent. You know, we just kind of kept pushing that blame onto somebody else. And again, I would say we, we have a hard time identifying that as rebellion, and we more want to think about it as a story of gullibility. Uh, somebody was too gullible and, uh, and ate a line they shouldn't have. But when you analyze it closely, you, you, you have to, you have to conclude that this particular event does at least fall into the category of at least soft rebellion, if not full blown. I would say probably full blown. But man here had deliberate, understood directions, and he deliberately did what he wasn't supposed to do. I mean, there was, it wasn't that hard. Don't eat of this tree. And you eat of it. So, that is certainly, Certainly rebellion. Now let's turn to, to the book of Numbers just briefly. I want to uh, look at a couple of incidents here in Numbers that also show um, some real, um, a series of rebelliousness. In fact, you could look at many in the book of Numbers. I'm just going to look at two. The first one is in chapter 12, where Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because he had married a woman that they didn't think that he should have. And... Um, and it says, hath, in verse 2, they said, Hath not the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? And it says, the Lord heard it. And then in, in verse 3, it says, not only that, but Moses was a very meek man. In fact, he was the meekest man that was upon the face of the earth at that time. And um, so then we have this saga, and we have how um, you know Miriam suffers for this particular um, this particular act of rebellion, I believe. Why Miriam did this is um, a little bit unknown. The Ethiopian wife is the is is what they said, but I have a feeling that was just more of an excuse. Um, after all, I think Miriam, she was older than than Moses. She had a part to play in Moses's um, existence. Actually, we remember the story of how she guarded Moses there in that in the rushes and so on. And I think she's, for some reason, she just got this idea that Moses is just feels a little too, uh, thinks a little too much for himself. And, uh, of himself. And so she, she, uh, went to, went to uh, work and had this particular, um, accusation against him. I think it's, we should, we can consider here, and while it's not brought out, we should consider the fact that there's a there's a bit of a disorder here too. Consider the fact that Moses is, after all, a woman, and in God's order, we understand the order of of God's creation, how man is uh, is the authority over the woman, and so on. The other thing is we have Moses being directly called by God at a burning bush, and surely Miriam was aware of that. But anyway, we'll leave that one, and now we'll go to chapter 16, where we have another rebellion taking place, and this is the very familiar story of Korah here. And uh, if you back up into the previous chapter there in chapter 15 and verse 37, you have specifically said that the Lord spoke to Moses. And he had this little order that Moses was supposed to give the people about these ribbons of blue around the bottom of their garments. And then we segue right into uh, chapter 16 and we have this 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 uh, man by the Korah, by the name of Korah, and his friends, Dathan and Abiram, rising up 
And uh, 250 other princes also that were famous in the congregation there in verse 2. And they gathered themselves against Moses and said, you take too much on yourself. You're just getting a little too bossy here, Moses, now. And I have a feeling, my my personal feeling is that has something to do with the instructions that was given in, in the previous chapter. And there was something about that that ground these people. And they did not, they didn't want to do it. So they said, Moses, you're getting just a little too bossy. And when really what was happening is that he was only repeating the words of the Lord. And I think he even says that um, in verse 28 of, of this chapter. He says, Moses said, Hereby ye shall know that the Lord has sent me to do these works, for I have not done them of my own mind. So I'm not going to elaborate much on this other than to say that Korah and Dathan and Abiram and their families and their cattle and their tents and the possessions were all swallowed up by the by the earth and uh, went down into the pit quickly, it says. But now the, the, the irony of the whole thing, the next day, the people, the people that were left said, wait a minute, Moses, you just killed the people of the Lord. What did you do? And they blamed Moses for something that they had witnessed that Moses had nothing to do with. I mean, Moses had zero to do with that ground opening up that day and these people being swallowed quickly into the, the pit, as it's called. And yet they blame Moses. Uh, it's, it's almost unbelievable. And so there's a plague breaks out. Um, Moses intercedes with the, for the people and the plague is stopped. And in, then cha- in chapter 17 then, we have uh, the Lord wanting to make it abundantly clear who he had chosen as his leaders here. And so he, he, he had these rods that were brought, and he said, whoever's rod buds is who I have chosen. And it says Aaron's rod not only budded, but it, it, it broke forth in leaves and also bore fruit. I mean, there was no question when it was all over who God had called here. And, and it was a, it was a token of God's testimony, a testimony about God's feelings about this particular event. Now, if you go back into Jude, Jude 11, Jude refers to this event as the gainsaying of Korah. And other translations would, would call that the rebellion of Korah. So this is clearly understood in, in our Bibles as, as, a, as a rebellion that was uncalled for. Now, as an interesting side note, the sons of Korah had a very, um, had a very, um, Interesting and, and somewhat significant, um, part to play in this whole thing of taking care of the tabernacle. It's not like these were insignificant people. And in verse nine, I think Moses even refers to that. He says in chapter 16 and verse nine, he says, seemeth it but a small thing unto you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself and to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister unto them. So even despite this significant role that Korah played, he wanted more. Do you, do you begin to see kind of a, um, of, a, um, of a theme beginning to develop? We have Lucifer, who had a very significant pl- place in heaven, but he wants more. Um, we have here... Um, in the uh, account in Genesis, we have mankind, who is the highest of God's creation. They, they are the top, but they want more. They want to be like gods. 
We have here the sons of Korah, Korah and his people, that play a very significant role in uh, in the care of the tabernacle. But no, they they want more. They want to they want to be in Moses' spot. See. Now, I would like to stop here and just comment on something that that is should be obvious, but maybe we we just need to sit and think about it a little bit. All authority that is established on earth is always held by a human. Now that's a that's a unbelievable statement, right? I mean, it should be obvious, but it let's just make that clear. Now, no no one human is better than another. That is another thing that should be abundantly clear. No person, no matter what his authority, makes him better than the person that is under his authority. It's it's nothing to do with being better. A husband is not better than his wife, right? This is a valid observation. However, many times authority is abused and it can very be very easily done. I mean, we see it displayed very nicely in society around us, for sure. Um, who gets to live in the castles? Is it the king's? Or is it the serfs in the hills? Well, we know that. We, the kings live in the castle just on mere merit that they are the king. Well, that's unfair. That's, that's abuse of authority. Or special privileges that perhaps in our own country that lawmakers will make for themselves, but they won't leave that leeway for, you know, you and I as civilians. It, it's, it's an abuse of authority. And, and the same thing can happen in a home and it can happen in a church. There is an abuse Possible that can that can happen, and that's precisely the reason that Jesus gives specific instructions that in His kingdom leaders should always serve as servants. That's that's the mentality that they should have because they are no better than the people that they are leading. And he was he was very very keenly aware that that could be abused, and so he gave specific instruction about that. But is, is it not also true that jealousy and contempt are also common factors from those that are under authority and that that can just be as much of an abuse of the situation? Um, I, I think that is, I think that is obvious in these, in these particular uh, things that we just read, these accounts we just read. Um, Moses, he did not want to be a leader. He tried to argue that his way out of that thing at the bush, like everything. We know that. And uh, almost to the point that God was angry with him. And yet these people said, you take this on yourself, Moses. That wasn't true. That was not true. And I think that's, that's precisely why um, in the New Testament, Paul tells Timothy, he said, when some, someone comes to you, and they have an accusation against an elder, make sure you get two or three witnesses. And and he likewise understood the opportunity for abuse to take place the other way. So we have a real tenuous situation here where there can be abuse both ways, and uh, that needs to be um, clearly understood. Now, to conclude this Numbers thing, now we need to go to Numbers 20. And we have here the, the account where Moses is told by God to speak to a rock, to bring water out of the rock, because these people were thirsty and they needed water. Well, what did Moses do? We know the account. He strikes the rock, and what did he say? He said in verse 10, 
Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said unto them, Hear now, ye rebels, must we fetch water, you water, from this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand with his rod, and he smote the rock twice. He specifically went against God's clear directions. God said, speak. Moses hits it twice. And he, he, he also rightly, I think he rightly concluded that the people that he was fetching this water for were rebels. I mean, that's what they were. They were, they were a stiff-necked people that he was working with here. But, it has to be noted that God held Moses responsible for that failure. And, and who can blame Moses? I mean, I can only imagine his, his anger and frustration. And I got to believe he was just sick and tired of what he was dealing with. And his frustration came out in this burst of anger. But did God overlook that? Did God say, just because Moses, you've had a lot of frustration... You have been mistreated. You have been falsely accused. And not only that, you are the meekest man on earth. For that Moses, I will overlook this, this situation. He did not. He was sorely punished with a punishment he could almost hardly bear. And in fact, he implored with God on several occasions till God finally said, Moses, quit talking about it. You're not going into the promised land. All right. I think that speaks of the fairness of God. God is very fair, and we should be fair as well. I'm going to just quickly um, talk about one more example, and that's in 2 Samuel 13 to 19. That's the insurrection of Absalom. We're not going to turn there. It's too long to necessarily get into the weeds on. But we know that we have David as a sitting king. We know there's a family malfunction where two half-siblings um, are at odds with each other over a very grievous um, illicit affair there that took place between some half-siblings. And Absalom's anger is stirred up, and he begins to want to usurp the king of David, the throne of David, I should say. And it's a, it's a long and winding story, but, but he begins to steal the people's hearts, it, say, it says there, and he begins to diss the king. David takes off running, um, and in the end, the, the rebellion of Absalom is rooted out largely because David's Servants recognized it for what it was, and David wished to not recognize it for what it was. David, David had a lot of grace, I will say, with Absalom. Probably more grace than he perhaps even should have. I will say that in this account, the rebellion of Absalom seems to be rooted in the fact that he felt like there was an injustice in the family, and he was going to go about correcting it. It seems like that was the impetus for the problem. But the story also leads us to believe that the rebellion could have also been averted if there would have been better leadership on the part of David. There does seem to be that, not necessarily stated, but a person certainly can can uh, can pick that up. This does lend credence, in my mind, to the fact that a lack of good leadership can make a breeding ground for rebellion. I, I do believe that that is possible. And yet... And yet, I will say, even in that instance, rebellion is not justifiable. And I would just point back to David as a very good example. Whenever Saul was hunting his life, and he had ample opportunity on several occasions to take Saul out, and he chose not to. 
and and in our minds we almost could conjure up justifiable reasons that he should have. But David certainly did not exercise a spirit of rebellion in that instance. All right, so what what are we to learn from all this? Well, number one, as I already stated, but let's state it again, the, the spirit of rebellion is rooted in Satan. And it is an affront to the order that is established by God on many fronts. And this order is put in place for our ultimate benefit. And I'm just going to point out that there's basically three structures of authority in, in our world. You have family, you have church, and you have state. Those are kind of the three structures of authority. And inside of those structures we have clear understanding of how that's supposed to work. So in the family, it's, it's, it's the man, the woman, the children. In society, it is, um, you know, it, it, it's, you know, whatever dignitaries you have that are the sitting dignitaries of a particular country. And then you have all that levels of government, and then you have civilians. And, and we understand that. And we understand in the church that there are God-appointed leaders and authorities there. And then there's the brotherhood. Now, I would say in each one of those instances, in the man and the woman in the family unit, um, anytime things get out of whack there, the, 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 the woman usurps authority away from the, the man, or the man does not give any credence to what his wife has to say, we, we begin to quickly have dysfunction. And the same thing happens, and we see it happening in our world, when society begins to distrust the sitting government, you have a problem. You just you just do, and the same thing uh, works out in church. Um, if um, I see I see basically church brotherhood, and this is just my my take on it. If you don't, if you disagree, you can you can talk to me about this. But I don't really see um, those called in places of authority uh, as necessarily lords over God's heritage. I see it more as a husband and wife uh, situation. Anytime a leader thinks he's above. Um, approach, or that he has a he has some sort of a um, of a a take on things that the brotherhood doesn't. We're probably we're probably running into trouble, and vice versa. If the if the if the brotherhood uh, has no time for what the leader has to say, likewise there's going to be trouble. There has to be a mutual respect. In other words, is what I'm saying. So let, let, let's just leave it with that. So, generally speaking, this order that God established is needed and beneficial, and when it's functioning well, it's just an ideal situation. But when it's functioning less than ideally, we begin to justify, I think, a rebellious spirit. In other words, think about, think about the corruption of our current government, and it's corrupt. Let's just get it out. There it is. But think about how much worse it would be if we didn't even have the corrupt government that we have. In other words, I think we're even benefiting from a government structure, even though it is corrupt. Okay, I think we are. And I would say the same thing for the home and the church. Even when things aren't batting quite as ideally as we would like them, I would still say that speaking in generalities, there is still benefit to that structure and maintaining and honoring that structure, unless it gets really egregious, and, and I'll maybe talk about that a little later, but I believe it's there for a reason. And, and until it gets extreme or totally godless, even with shortcomings and mistakes, I believe it's the best alternative. 
All right, number two, the tendency to rebellion, I believe, is greatly reduced by good relationships, but it is never justified because of improper relationships, and it can still express itself even in the best of relationships. All right, you got that? Um, You know, we're people of feelings, and we like to be respected and heard and understood, And submission to authority is very easy in these conditions. And I believe our Sunday school lesson was a wonderful example of how that works. That the the interaction between Boaz and his employees tells me that there was a good relationship there. Boaz was a good boss, and his servants had no problem submitting to his authority. It was it was a wonderful thing. Um, But as I look through the New Testament, I could never I could not find a place where the call to submission was based on condition of convenience or easiness. It was always on the principle that this is what God has designed and this is what pleases him. And rebellion is never uh, there as an option. And I would just point out, Romans 13 is, is, is a very go-to, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. And in the context, we have a very... Wicked King Nero uh, as the person that they're supposed to be subject to. Wives, submit unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Um, again, how do we submit unto the Lord? Uh, we do that because we should. We know we should. Even at times when it seems like the chastening is more than we can bear, we submit to that, don't we? Servants, be obedient unto your own masters with fear and trembling and singleness of heart as unto Christ. And again, let's remember that we we would better understand that as slaves. Slaves, submit. Hebrews 13, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls, etc. So all of these, you don't really have a precursor of a... um, Necessarily, you have to do this only if the authority or the person you're called to submit to is is actually doing exactly everything they should. And I would say that Christ is a pristine example of a submissive heart. Um, Paul tells the Philippian church that they should have the mind in them that was in Christ Jesus, because even though he was in the form of God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Or in other words, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But he took no reputation, the form of a servant or a slave, made in the likeness of man, found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So the question that should be asked is, well, what do we do whenever authority does go rogue? So we have a rogue authority. And I will say that there's something in our human nature that, that wants to uh, lend sympathy to people that find themselves in a very unfortunate rogue situation and, and that, that, um, that urge to resistance in that particular situation. Well, I will say this. These are very difficult decisions to make, but in the instance where we have to resist authority, I still believe that we can do it in an honorable way. I know that's difficult, but we need to decide what is being asked. Can I actually have God's blessing if I rebel against this? And then we must decide whether we must move very carefully. 
you know, Peter and John in the temple is a very, very easy one. The authorities said, don't preach in the temple. The angel says, preach in the temple. And so Peter and John said, we're going to obey our higher authority because our lower authority is out of place. Let's take another easy one. Let's say a father, a rogue father asks his son to steal. That's easy. It's an easy call. No, you don't steal no matter if the father wants you to or not. And we could, we could go through other examples, but sometimes those, those things get very unclear. But my only plea would be in the event where we, we choose to do something that our authority asks us not to do, let's think through that very carefully and make sure that our attitudes are clear and right in that. I think in our humanness, we tend to make excuses for ourselves that are kind of hard to justify at times. And I think this is especially comes up in church brotherhood relationships. I expect in the majority of instances when I personally get in sideways with the brotherhood and begin to resist something, the problem is largely mine. But again, in the event that I have to legitimately depart from a brotherhood, and I hope that that is a rarity, I think we can still retain our integrity and live and abstain from a rebellious spirit. But very often this principle is not followed. I would like to just think about one cliche yet before we close. What about this saying, rules without relationship lead to rebellion? Well, I, I, I looked up where that phrase even came from, and apparently uh, Josh McDowell uh, coined this little this little phrase. And when you quickly read over it, what jumps out at you is that rules are the reason for rebellion. And and, and, and fundamentally, it is where there is no rules. There's no there, how can you rebel? So fundamentally, that's true. Or perhaps with proper relationship, there would never be rebellion. But as we looked at our at our Biblical examples, I would say that other than the event with David and Absalom, we certainly can conclude that there wasn't too many rules in the garden, and it wasn't because of a lack of relationship that Adam and Eve chose to rebel. And the same thing could be said of Moses and Korah and Dathan and i got to believe Moses was doing the best he could in the circumstances to maintain this relationship with the millions of people that he had to, and his rules were coming directly from God. Okay, so we those it doesn't fit there, and I think I think perhaps we should add this little epitaph onto that particular uh, uh, little sentence. So, rules without relationship leads to rebellion. But I would also suggest that a carnal heart is always bent toward rebellion and will rebel despite good relationships or good rules. All right, let's just say it. Submission, obviously, is the opposite of rebellion, and it is the clear call of the New Testament. And this is often needed for the cause of the greater good. And the question is, can I respond well to that? Can I? Too often, I think, we look at submission and we interpret it as being weak-spined or not, not the response of a real man or only a response of someone that can't think for himself or something like that. But really what it is, it is a sign of true spiritual strength. And I'll give you one quick example. When I go into Iowa and I do my thing down there every once in a while, when I go through a town, 
The speed limit is always 25 miles an hour. And I have to admit, I, I can hardly go that slow. That's difficult to get it down that slow. But when I think about what's trying to be accomplished, the, 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 what they're trying to accomplish is that in case someone jaywalks in front of you, you're not going so fast that you can't slam the brakes and avoid killing someone. That's the goal. Here in Minnesota, we're a little quicker and we can do it at 35. Down there in Iowa, they got to set it at 25. But if I can understand it for the greater good of society, I can drive 25. I can do that. And you can take that illustration and you can apply that to your family. You can apply that to church. When I am asked to do something for the cause of the greater good, even though I maybe don't under, even understand it and don't think it's legitimate, can I submit just for the cause of the greater good? Now, I'm not promoting unreasonable authority. I'm not justifying a lack of relationships. And I'm not even suggesting that authority doesn't at times abuse its power and that they will not be held accountable for that. But I'm just saying, on a part as a person, I don't believe I can justify my rebellious heart because I'm asked to do something that I don't want to do or that my authority is not relating to me as I believe they should. I just do not believe that that's, that that's the case. Well, Closing considerations, I'm just going to bump down through a few questions and then I'm going to close. So have I identified rebellion in my life that I justify on a flimsy excuse as we've pondered over this? Number two, am I able to submit my will to my authorities for the greater good and for my spiritual benefit? Can I do that? Number three, am I as a parent instilling this valuable spiritual virtue into my children by modeling it, teaching it, and promoting it? I'll go back to the story of Korah. It seems, in my mind, it seems a little unfair that his children had to die in that rebellion. But as I thought over it, I got to believe that rebellious spirit that Korah had, you can't tell me he didn't talk about that in his tent sometimes, around the kitchen table with his children present, and God in his sovereignty knew that there was a generation of people being rose up that had heard that and had imbibed that rebellious attitude. And, and the best way to clean up the camp was to take the generation out as well. That's just my thought. Are we also willing to recognize that submission is exclusively a choice, as is rebellion? It has nothing to do with my circumstances. Now, that's a mouthful, and I had to rewrite that sentence several times before I was willing to put it down that harshly. But, folks, you think about it. After all we've considered here this morning, I have to conclude submission and rebellion is a choice, and it has nothing to do with my circumstances. Now, your, your circumstances can make that exponentially easier or harder. That I will say. But the Bible calls us to, the, to, the, to submission based on God's demand for it. All right. Do I recognize that this, this particular virtue is tied very much to my spiritual victory? And I would just point to James 4 in closing. It says like this, but he gives more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. And I would say by extension, we could say the authorities that God has put in our lives. Resist the devil 
and he will flee from you. May God bless us to this end.